You're listening to High Temperature Times, and cheers to that. My name is Griffin Patterson, and I am an application specialist with Harbison Walker International. Thanksgiving is a time for turkeys, stuffing, and being thankful for your family. All of them. Even Aunt Janice, whose snide remarks get less and less subtle every year. But it's also time for football, buffalo chicken dip, and those sweet, sweet libations that make all of that family bearable. We're talking beer. And whether you're drinking craft beer, light beer, or even non-beer like soda pop, you wouldn't be enjoying it without refractories. So this month, we'll be feeling thankful for refractories after talking with Paul Stepanovich about glass bottle manufacturing and Mark Promesino about aluminum can manufacturing. But let's start by pre-gaming with a question from our technical marketing inbox. If you've got a question for the podcast, send them our way by emailing us at technical-marketing at thinkhwi.com using the subject line podcast. This month, we have a question from Jim Mossy asking, why does having a multi-component lining make the refractory dryout process so much longer? A very fair question, and one that I'm sure comes as a shock to many. After all, the standard dryout for plus or online rated monos will get you up and running in about one to two days with straight ramps to operating temperature. But adding a backup can almost double that due to the need for holds at specific temperatures. A couple things contribute to the loss of fast dryout capabilities when using multi-component linings. First, when heated, the water contained in the monolithic will move backwards toward the cold face, where it can get trapped between the two components. It's important here to have a hold where single component materials won't need one, as the water needs to continue through the cold face part of the lining before it reaches its boiling point. If the latter happens first, the water will expand substantially as it turns to gas, leading to explosive spalling and failure of the refractory on dryout. So what's stopping that water from moving into the cold face at the same speed as the water moving through the hot face? Well, the cold face material, typically an insulating castable, has a lot more water in it than the hot face castable. For example, Green Clean 60 as a hot face material will use 5% water, whereas Castellite 23 backup will use 55% water. The difference creates a back pressure stopping the water's movement, so we need to get that cold face water moving to encourage the hot face water's continual trek towards the shell. So yeah, it's substantially more complicated to dry out multi-component linings than their single component counterparts. Maybe later we could talk about the importance of weep holes and wicking ropes. But thank you, Jim, for the question, and we look forward to another one next month. Anyways, let's kick off this Thanksgiving throwdown with some introductions. Paul, supporting his Glenshaw glass jersey, will be telling us about the glass bottle manufacturing industry. And Mark, wearing his Allegheny Aluminum Away jersey, will be receiving the kick to talk about aluminum. Paul, given that this is your first time on the show, would you like to introduce yourself a little bit? Thanks, Griffin. Um, Been with HWI for coming up on 10 years now. Uh, Been focused on the glass market the entire time, uh, initially in a sales role. And then for the past three and a half years, been in the technical marketing group as a application specialist for glass. And a little bit of additional background is ceramic engineering background from Penn State and was in the same undergraduate class with Mark. <laughs> it's uh, good to see you, Polly. <laughs> good to see you too, Mark. Mark, you don't get an intro. You've been on HGT far too often for people to not know who you are. However, since you did win the coin toss, you can go first. I have to ask, though, do you prefer drinking your bevy of choice out of an aluminum can or a glass bottle? I mean, I've got to say an aluminum can. I mean, you could put it in a backpack or, you know, take it on a kayak a heck of a lot easier than a glass bottle. And what's better than drinking beer on the top of a mountain or or on a river? When I was a kid, I was obsessed with the show How It's Made, and I still remember the episode from Making Aluminum Cans. So I know it's not like cans are forged from molten aluminum, but instead pressed from an aluminum sheet thanks to the highly ductile properties of metals. 
There's actually a fantastic video made by Engineer Guy on YouTube if you'd like to learn more about the aluminum pressing process. But more importantly for this episode, Mark, can you take us back to that massive roll of aluminum that's used to make the blanks for aluminum cans? How is that made? Sure, sure, Griffin. Um, yeah, the ductility allows you to make an aluminum can at you know nearly room temperature. So uh, it might be a mechanical engineer's dream, but uh, to a refractory man, it's, it's pretty boring. So yeah, we have to go back to the furnace, um, understand where that, that ingot that gets rolled into the sheet, uh, that gets drawn into the can actually comes from. And so what you start with is a recycled bale of aluminum cans, uh, crushed up square block of aluminum cans, four foot by like seven foot, can weigh anywhere from 700 to 2,000 pounds, and half to two-thirds of um, the, the metal that's in an aluminum beverage can comes from that bale of recycled cans. So you take this big block of crushed together cans, uh, you shred it, you sort it to remove debris, you know, debris like glass, Paul, get rid of the plastic, other garbage, um, you feed that shredded can, sans the glass, into a delacquering kiln um, to remove all the paint. And then uh, those potato chip sized uh, pieces of aluminum are fed into the furnace. The, the nature of those uh, shredded up cans necessitates that an aluminum furnace has to have a special little well, um, like a side furnace attached to the main furnace, where those, those shredded cans are fed into the furnace. The balance of the metal for the can are solid chunks of aluminum called, called sows, and they are fed right in the front door of the aluminum furnace. Uh, so you take all that metal, you heat it to 1400 degrees F, cook it for, you know, two to four hours, and you have molten aluminum that's uh, ready to be cast into a, an ingot. I think one of the interesting things that you mentioned there, and something I've just never really delved into, is is that delacquering kiln. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it's, it's just a rotary kiln, a fairly low temperature uh, kiln that's only meant to take the paint off the can uh, because uh, the impurities that are in that paint uh, can affect the metal quality. And there can be some alkalis, uh, which will go in and attack the, the refractory lining as well. Yeah. So then the, the cans, which are not melted at whatever temperature the paint is removed at, is are then fed through that rotary kiln and go they go straight into that side door that you mentioned for the aluminum kiln? That's right. It's called a charge well. And so the pieces of, of aluminum can are fed into that well. They're melted there. And then a, a pump actually pumps the material through a submerged arch into the main chamber of the furnace. One of the things I saw in, in your notes for this was the different alloys that, that go into aluminum cans, which I guess then are going to go right back into the recycled aluminum. How is the alloy managed after you're, you're kind of mix and matching all of these bits of a can that have different alloys? How does that turn into the final alloy you need out of that furnace? Sure. The the, the main body of the can is a is an alloy that's it's a 3000 series alloy. And so it's it's easy to to draw that material and make the body of the can. Um, and so that's melted in, in one furnace. The top of the can, though, has to have a lot of high strength. So it's made out of a, a 5,000 series alloy that's more similar to what you'd make a railroad car out of. Um, so it's kind of a heavy load application alloy uh, because there's a lot of force put on the top of that can when you crack it open and get ready to drink your favorite beverage. And so that different alloy is melted in a different furnace or on a different 
it's in a different melt. So to get a really high strength aluminum alloy, you need to put a lot of magnesium in it. And so that magnesium that's used to alloy the aluminum to make the 5000 series alloy is really destructive to the refractory. Hmm. But what about in the recycling process? I mean, they're not recycling the top of the can separately than the, than the side of the can. Yeah, it, it all goes into the same process, and that's really why you can't um, use all recycled material to make, to make your can. Uh, you probably could for the body, but the top um, is, is a more specialty thing to manufacture. Good. And okay. they might be using something else recycled to make that 5000 series alloy, not, not a beverage can. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So let's break this down step by step and see the refractories involved. I mean, you mentioned the the magnesium with the top of the can and how it can be more destructive to the refractories. What's happening in there that the refractories are battling? And what refractories are we talking about? Well, I mean, the the materials we're talking about, first and foremost, are phosphate-bonded brick are always your best solution in an aluminum furnace uh, because it resists reaction with the aluminum metal. Now, the magnesium just accelerates that reaction. Um, it allows it to happen faster um, and at a lower oxygen partial pressure. And so the Alcor brick are our, our best solution. Alcor brick, DV38 brick are our best solution against um, aluminum corrosion. Our Armor Tech uh, uh, family of castables are our best castable solution. But both of those products are designed and built to resist um, wetting of the refractory by the aluminum metal. Uh, transport of the aluminum metal into the refractory structure, and then any reaction that could occur between the aluminum metal and and the refractory. All right, it's halftime, and since it ain't the Super Bowl yet, I'll spare you the Beyonce, and we'll jump right back in with Paul talking about glass bottles. Unlike my comment earlier about the many steps in aluminum can manufacturing, you could say that glass bottles are forged from molten glass. I've had the pleasure of seeing one of these facilities in my college days with globs of molten glass shooting overhead, and it's absolutely fantastic. Paul, do you want to quickly run us through how molten glass is turned into bottles before we hit the furnace itself? Sure. Um, If we start at the forming operation of this. So the molten glass as it's left the melter is going to go into what's called a four hearth channel. At the end of that four hearth you'll have the uh, the glass feeder assembly. Uh, the glass will come out in uh, measured amounts for enough glass for one bottle and that's a, a gob of glass is what it's called. The uh, feeders will have the gob of glass come out. It'll come out in either single, double, triple, or quad uh, through the orifice rings, flying down, as you spoke about, through all the uh, the chutes into the molds, which will be the IS machine, uh, which stands for individual section. The gob of glass will go into initial one, where essentially it's a partial bottle will be made. It'll be the neck of the glass will be formed. Uh, that's what it will be called. That is called a parison. It'll be flipped around into another mold where the air will then blow out and you'll have the glass bottle that we recognize uh, that'll come out, travel down toward the uh, annealing layer where the thermal stresses are released, cooled down, and then onward toward uh, packaging. I think what's really interesting about that process is is just the sheer speed of it. Yes. Right. I mean, how how many bottles are they are they pushing out in in a single line? Right. You're talking about you know one, two, three, or four molds per per operation per press. We'll call it. But they have what hundreds of molds going at the same time. I don't know about hundreds, but they have quite a, quite a lot going. And and the 
the speed as at which the glass is flowing down is it's uh it's dizzying you can be uh, mesmerized by it facts and, uh, but then also like you know it almost completely 180s because the annealing process is just as necessary quite slow so it's just you get this flood of bottles just very quickly slowly working their way through <laughs> All right, excellent. Um, it's just such a cool and lightning fast process. I love it. It's, uh, I I will always remember that from my college days. But let's hit rewind and uh, talk a little bit about the furnace itself before the four hearth, as you mentioned. What does that look like? So the uh, so within the container glass furnace, your uh, a common uh, design would be one that has a, a regenerator at the end, so an end fired uh, regenerative furnace. The Along one of the sides, either the right or the left, the material is going to come in through what's known as the doghouse. Uh, in its simplest form, that batch is going to be a mixture of silica sand, soda ash, limestone, and then recycled glass can also be used, which is known as call it. Uh, that'll be fired in that furnace. We're talking 2700 to 2800 degrees. You know, Polly, it seems like we may have more similarities than differences, actually. I mean, that doghouse sounds a lot like the charge well in an aluminum furnace. Potentially, yes. The similar, uh, similar concept. Yeah, and on a similar note, when you when you empty an aluminum furnace, it flows through uh, a system of refractory line troughs to the caster, in much the same way your forehearth is is really just a trough full of molten glass. Mm-hmm. See, Paulie, I like to bring people together. I mean, you know, we have more in common than we have different. <laughs> the differences. That's the glory of beer, though, right? It brings people together. <laughs> <laughs> so, um. All right, so that uh, molten glass, you're going to be um, in the furnace, we'll say a potential depth of uh, five foot for glass, going to flow, leave the uh, melter chamber into a uh, through a throat, and then out into the uh, four hearths that we had mentioned, which uh, uh, it will be called shops in some facilities. In the case here, you know, it would lead into the description that talked about with uh, glass bottles. The one question I have based off everything you're talking about is this furnace seems like it's, you know, a sizable system, right? Mm -hmm. And what what they don't show you in the shop is this glass is coming from sometimes two, three stories overhead because you need the gravity assist to get the gobs of, of glass into the mold. How are they getting – do they have the furnace two to three stories in the air? Yeah, the, uh, the, the melter assembly will often be a couple stories – up in a sense that one for one reason it's you're, you're prepared for worst case scenario that if there is a glass week it'll be captured in that uh, basement containment area but the uh, the regenerators whether it's on the end or the sides are, are going to extend uh, down into that basement area so you'll the furnace at that higher level the melter glass as it flows uh, into the uh, the four hearths the glass level of the four hearth will be the same as the uh uh, melter itself, so those four hearths are raised up a little bit in a sense, then flows out, and then gravity in the sense dropping, coming out at the end and the, from the feeder assembly into the uh, IS machines to to make the bottles. You know, now that I'm thinking about it too, Paul, you know the the differences between molten glass and molten aluminum drive a lot of that that process difference. That you know, molten aluminum is as fluid as water, where molten glass is kind of like uh, soft taffy. Mm -hmm. And it drives the furnace design, the furnace size, 
um, the whole organization of the plant. Right. So one of the very little things that I know in glass is that different types of glass call for different types of refractories. Um, in the container glass world, what are the refractories that we're looking at here? So uh, some common ones in the case of glass contact on the sidewalls, um, even into the, the breast walls, you'd find a fuse cast uh, alumina zirconia silica. So for us, that would be uh, within the Tiger brand family. The paving commonly is still uh, bonded AZS, so that would be our uh, Vision brand. There are some uh, uh, glass container melters are, that are still using uh, high zirconia like TZB. And then the, uh, the crown, you'll find uh, some Super Duty Silica, Vega. And, um, you know, I mean, those are the main, main compositions of everything. So that's pretty much what you're going to find within the, the glass tank itself in the melter. Um, as you feed into the, the go into the fore hearth, um, the channels themselves, you could find some designs that would be fuse cast AZS, but you also have others where it's a uh, high purity alumina, kind of like our, our such as our Takeor MDC to making those channels. Maybe a question for both of you here. I mean, what are the differences in a, refractories for the vessel Paul and glass for your case like with the melting furnace and the fore hearth and then Mark for your case in your melter furnace and your holding furnace do you do you have key differences in, in what you're looking at for those so for Mark like is the lining in your in your melting furnace the same as the lining in your holding furnace yes and then Paul is the lining in your melter the same as your lining in your fore hearth there are uh, similar materials. You know, you could have some furnaces that are using fuse cast for both the uh, melter sidewalls as well as the uh, the channels. But uh, you you do have some scenarios where it's a slightly different composition. Where as you're you might have uh, you you transition say from an AZS to more of a high alumina uh, in, into the four hearth glass contact. I'm thinking, but the uh, uh, superstructure. You're going to cover blocks. are going to still, or you could have um, andalusite uh, material, kind of like our, our, such as our Nike family. But you could also have that present in the uh, uh, superstructure in the furnace itself in the melter. All that said, Paul, it's your turn to answer the question. Do you prefer to drink your libation of choice from a glass or aluminum container? Of course, through glass. It's going to taste so much cleaner. <laughs> <laughs> All right, one, one last question. I think one of the great things about both glass and aluminum containers is the recyclability of it all. But which one is more recyclable? I'll take the, fir the first stab at that. I, I have to say aluminum. I mean, 75% of all of the aluminum that has ever been produced is still in circulation. I mean, an aluminum can is, is two-thirds made from recycled material. I don't think you could say that about glass, Paul. Probably not to that number, but... Uh, does lend itself to be recycled. It's uh, like we mentioned, or I mentioned before, is that the uh, recycled glass that are crushed, reused for furnace feed would be called collet. Um, unfortunately, there are uh, some uh, townships or some towns around the area where they're stopping the glass recycling. So you have to be a little bit more proactive and find the, the recycling centers to take your glass to to make sure it gets reused. And we are prepared as a company that if uh, 
uh, some metal does end up into that uh, recycling stream, we have the uh, the products for that sub paving to uh, to encapsulate the the metal and prevent the downward drilling, which is the path that the molten glass would want to follow out of the furnace. Interesting. I didn't know that was the cause of that. And it is a little bit economics, though, too, Polly, isn't it? That like sand is pretty cheap, the main raw material in glass. And so in order to sort the colored bottles and get a cullet that has some economic value is tough. I mean, recycled aluminum, you're replacing primary aluminum, which is really energy intensive and expensive to make. So, you know, all all jokes aside, it's a complex, really a complex question to ask, Griffin. Even for two guys as smart as Paul, pa- Paul and me from Penn State. Yeah. yeah, it is. All right, and since nobody asked me, I elect to enjoy my beverage of choice out of an aluminum can. My grandfather, Rolf Rolas, is one of the main reasons why we get to drink from an aluminum cans in the first place. Without him, the pool tab technology would likely have been phased out by the encroaching plastic industry, since the very first pool tabs left the edges sharp enough to cut your lip while drinking. His work running the Alcoa Laboratory in Pittsburgh helped develop a pigment that would soften the edges when punched, allowing everyone to enjoy their drink without tasting blood. He's the reason why I chose to become an engineer and why you now get to enjoy this fantastic podcast. But that's the game. Thank you, Paul and Mark, for being part of the Festivus. You gotta love the holiday season, especially when pumpkin beer is involved. If you'd like to learn more about glass or aluminum manufacturing or any of the products mentioned on the show, please do reach out at technical-marketing at thinkhwi.com. Speaking of thankful, you know we'd be thankful if you give us the gift of a five-star review. In the meantime, have yourself a terrific turkey day, and as always, thanks for listening. Gobble, gobble.